I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. I'm your host, John Mark Yates, here with my co-host, imitable Michael McMullen. Are you excited to talk about our baseball-playing evangelist this week? I have been reminded about so much of Billy Sunday's life and uh, what an incredible person he was, uh, unique, I think, um, and and incredibly used uh, for the gospel. Yeah, so this our topic, Billy Sunday, uh, early 20th century uh, evangelist extraordinaire. I'm sitting here across the table from uh, Dr. McMullen, and he has got sheet after sheet after sheet of paper spread out with all of his quotes from Billy Sunday. Of course, we can't really get to all of them because uh, Sunday was a bit spicy. Well, he, um, he was down to earth. Uh, he was a bit like Luther. Uh, he said things as they appeared to him. His his lack of education never stopped him from uh, saying what he believed to be true about who Christ was and the state of society in which he lived. Well, let's start with his early life. I mean, he was born right up the road from us uh, here in Kansas City in Ames, Iowa, um, pretty much to a family of uh, of modest means. Uh, how on earth does he become this uh, evangelist? What are what are the key things that happen in his life that that transform him and move him to this uh, amazing, pretty much rock star, really of the of the early twentieth century? Well, e- even from his childhood, um, uh, there are he's brought up in in the midst of uh, sorrow and sadness. He knows the the death of uh, 10 siblings uh, by the age of 10. Just unreal. Um, and, and how one copes with that and processes that, it, to me, is just amazing that his, his mother uh, would send uh, the children away because uh, she couldn't financially support the family. The, the father had died. Billy Sunday said he never saw his father. Um, I think he died when Billy Sunday was five days old. This is the eve of the Civil War, and uh, Billy, Gra- uh, B- Billy Graham, Billy <laughs> Sunday, uh, leaves school uh, young. Uh, he has several jobs. He likes sport and, and starts to play for a, a local team. And it's in this baseball uh, that he finds really an escape from his life circumstances. It's, it's through baseball uh, that— the scout basically sees him and sees his athleticism and his own um, capabilities uh, relating to baseball that ends him uh, in a space where he is uh, recruited to play for the Chicago White Stockings. How crazy is that? Yeah, and uh, I don't know a great deal about baseball. I can maybe get to the first or, or the second inning or however you refer to it. Uh, but it all seems so similar after that. But uh, from from the stats that I can see, he didn't seem too good either at first, at least. Yeah, this is where I need some of my baseball friends because, unfortunately, for our listeners, you've got two people here who uh, probably couldn't be bothered for uh, uh, too much for baseball. However, uh, for Billy Sunday, in his sake, he actually later in his life uh, said it was one of the most patriotic and most uh, godly of all sports, baseball. So maybe we're just in the wrong here on that. Uh, maybe so. But maybe he never saw the beautiful game played. Of course, that could be a different 
Topic for a different time. Well, true. Uh-huh. <laughs> but Sunday, as he as he plays, he's in Chicago. He's playing for the White Stockings, and it's uh, he would talk about this uh, later in life providentially that God places him there, and uh, this is where he comes face to face with the gospel as uh, he's in town, uh, and there on a street corner it are some preachers from the Pacific Garden Mission that that classic, historic mission uh, in Chicago. And as they're singing hymns, he's brought back to this fond memory of childhood. So he sticks around and he listens to their preaching. And then he kind of falls in with uh, some of these guys, the Pacific Garden Mission. And eventually uh, they work with him and he comes to faith in Christ. And this is such a, a hallmark and a defining moment for him uh, that changes his life forever. Yeah, he, he marries soon after this. He, he's still playing baseball. Um, one of the facts that I read was that uh, he struck out um, his first 13 at-bats, which <laughs> I assume is a bad thing. Uh, he he <laughs> goes to the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, the Philadelphia Athletics, um, but he's very fast. He right. steals bases. Um, uh, he runs well. Uh, he he's batting um, two sixty one, which I assume is not very good. But um, he is converted and it immediately, I think, feels a call to preach. And he takes some skill, evidently, that he has uh, in oratory, and just uses his common vernacular to begin to uh, speak to people primarily in uh, the area around kind of Chicago and the Midwest, even kind of eventually uh, moving um, back towards kind of the Ames area. Uh, He he really kind of had a start, and and this is another organization that we should have an episode devoted to. Um, uh, Once he really understands his calling, he he gives up baseball. Like he was offered a, a uh, a, a basically a very lucrative contract for his day and time to play baseball, and he turned it down uh, instead to make uh, less than a hundred dollars a month uh, working for the YMCA. And it's it's the YMCA again. Moody was engaged with them, and and now we have uh, uh, Billy Sunday. He's engaged with them, and uh, it's here though that he begins to hone his craft and be able to see exactly uh, what it means to communicate to a large group of people the truth of the gospel. Yeah, he, he appears, you know, on stage, he gives his first um, sermon as a preacher, and it, it said in the late 1880s that uh, the audience, uh, there was about 500 men there, they didn't know anything about him as a preacher, mm-hmm. but they could remember him galloping to second base with his cap in his hand. And and so he already had this name. He was able to use who he was and speak to people in, in their vernacular. And, and that was that connection point that he really drew upon um, to, to help connect people to the gospel. So one of the stories I, I like to tell my, my students is if you could just picture yourself uh, in a massive uh, auditorium. So towards the end of his uh, his ministry, his team had this major tent thing that they would construct 
when they got there, it held 15,000 people. That they would, it's just a temporary structure. Mm. I'm sure you couldn't get a code for that anymore, right? right? But yes. uh, they would set up this massive structure and uh, show up in town. They'd have all these people there that would that would come to hear him preach uh, without amplification, and yet he would he would preach to these individuals. But uh, as he would as he would come in, uh, sometimes he would take the platform by running in off side stage and sliding like he was sliding into home right behind the pulpit. And then he'd pop up and yell safe, like moving his arms out like the umpire. And then he would then turn around rhetorically immediately and say, are you? And then he would launch into a gospel presentation and ask people if they were safe from the fires of hell and safe from uh, from evil because they had come to a relationship with Christ. Just dramatic and forceful in his message and conjured all these images for people uh, that that captured their their hearts, emotions, and and won many to Christ. Yeah, I think that's the incredible thing, isn't it? You can go online, uh, you can go to Google and and see actual videos yeah. of him preaching. He um, is there. He is so dramatic and and full of life, and and it's a compassion and a concern for the people who are listening. Um, he saw where society was going. Uh, he saw that the gospel really had had been corrupted and compromised by many churches, and and so he knew about the kind of onset of evolution and how that was encroaching, and and he would preach about scripture, about the Bible, how trustworthy Christ was, and and against evolution. Um, nowadays, he said, we think we are too smart to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus and too well educated to believe in the resurrection. That's why people are going to the devil in the multitudes. Right. So in, in some respects, I, I don't think you can help but place him in the camp of fundamentalists. I, I think he fits squarely in uh, with this growing uh, cadre of individuals who were trying to hold forth the, the, the truth of the Word of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, and uh, he was uncompromising on that uh, in every single setting that he was in. However. He was very broad in his understanding of who was a Christian. He uh, seemed very loose in his ecclesiology uh, specifically. So he would frequently talk of Catholics as if they are uh, uh, as if they were exactly to be viewed the same as evangelicals. And uh, he he made very little uh, distinction. At one point, talking about his wife, uh, when he met her, he said, "I become a I became a Presbyterian because uh, Nell was a Presbyterian, uh, but if she were a Catholic." I would have become a Catholic too because I just wanted to make sure that I solidified our relationship. Um, so it, it, he seems a little more loose on his understanding of maybe the doctrine of the church, but in terms of specific beliefs, he was he was pretty passionate about those. He, he was a, a target for so many people because of the way he presented the gospel and for that kind of wide, somewhat ecumenical view, let's say. But his overarching concern clearly was to win people to yeah. Christ. And, and the amount of conversions that he saw, um, he wasn't there as a number counter, but uh, the amount of people who would come forward at his crusades and rallies really is just staggering. And, and it was this concern for people. Now, those who came forward at his crusades, and this, this is a, a phrase that if you've been with, involved with any evangelicalism, 
for any amount of time. Maybe you've heard this. They were said to walk the sawdust trail. What was the sawdust trail and why is that tied really to what Billy Sunday is doing? Yeah, that he would invite people to come forward. He was building on what previous evangelists had done. You made a public declaration of your a desire to commit your life to Christ. And, and you would walk forward. It would indicate in a concrete way uh, that you'd heard the gospel and that you were responding to it. And the floors, just for the sake of acoustics, in his big old tent, uh, literally were covered, covered in sawdust. In sawdust. Yes. It, it made it to where if it was dirt, it was muddy. If it was whatever the, 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 the surface was, it just kind of evened it out. And so as these Hundreds of thousands of yeah. individuals came forward uh, to uh, respond to the preaching of the gospel. This walking of the sawdust trail became a uh, kind of an expression to indicate that one was uh, changing their life uh, for for Christ. Yeah, I mean, it, it's estimated, you know, maybe a third of a million people are won to Christ through this man's ministry. Um uh, you know, 80 to 150 million people hear him. Now say that number again. About 80 to 150 million. Which is crazy. He's only do, He's only speaking in the United he's States. He's in America. And, and, and this many people hear him. Um, they are, it, clearly they are drawn by uh, his preaching style, his message, his words. Many people know clearly that God is at work through him. There is a supernatural drawing. I mean, the, the closest analogy, I suppose, we, we do present is somebody like Billy Graham. Yeah, he was said to, towards the end of his life and ministry, he was preaching between 42 to 46 sermons a week. I mean, excuse me, excuse me not a week, a month. 42 to 46 a month, every single month to be able to preach that many times. Yeah, and this isn't, Standing in a pulpit, just basically turning over pages. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, Sunday was, um, you know, the man of one-liners. He was there. He, he would use the newspapers of the day. He would, you know, twirl these chairs around his head. He would make these uh, messages so incredibly relevant and and almost exciting, warning people with, with every means that he could do. In, in 1917, the magazine New Republic a, ha, actually covered him and talked about uh, kind of what this was. The, the, the journalist went in uh, a tad skeptical uh, of what was going on. Listen, listen to what this journalist said about him. I, I just find this so fascinating. He says, needing to arrest the attention of an incredibly large number of people, he adopts various evolutions that have a genuine emphatic value. It is a physical language with which the vast majority have a friendly, heroic associations, and for them, spoken so featly and gracefully, it works. Grasping the edge of the platform table as if about to spring like a tiger into the auditorium, Sunday gives his words a drive that makes you tense in your seat. Whipping like a flash from one side of the table to the other, he makes your mind keep in unison with his body. This, this is language trying to capture what so many people said either derisively or positively that, that Sunday was captivating when he spoke. Yeah, the, and these are the, the newspapers of the day given a report about what is taking place. Um, another reporter said that uh, 
you know, he attended and he said, Sunday was a whirling dervish that pranced <laughs> and cavorted and strode and bounded and pounded all over his platform and left them thrilled and bewildered as they had never been before. <laughs> so when you, when you hear this, it just it's fascinating to me uh, because his, his critics were we're absolutely astounded that anyone would go and see this. And, and I'm sure what we, we would say is he just had such amazing presence in the, you know, almost a theater that was going on uh, with, the, with the whole thing that, that there was some attraction to that. But at the same time, uh, he, he really is intending for individuals not just to be entertained, but quite frankly, to come face to face with Christ. Uh, but this is where, again, some of the, the critics, especially pastors, had strong difficulty with him. He used such strong language yeah, in the his, pulpit. His language wasn't filtered in the way that we normally think of a preacher using. And so as you're saying that for my listeners, uh, that is a, a classic uh, British soft <laughs> sell there. Um, he, he cussed. Uh, he was uh, rather crass uh, in, in in the pulpit. Uh, there was a- evidently one uh, sermon that he would we, he would preach to men's gatherings uh, about maintaining sexual purity, uh, and it was recorded that every time that he gave this talk about uh, sexuality and following God's design for sexuality, there would be three to eight men who would faint every single time that he gave it. <laughs> Just based on content alone, they couldn't believe anybody was talking uh, about this subject as crassly and as frankly as he was, yet by the end, he would pull it around and people would respond to the gospel. Yeah, he said, you know, I want to preach the gospel so plainly that men can come from the factories and not have to bring a dictionary. That, that probably was the case. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's also recorded that... Uh, his wife, um, who, who clearly um, tried to help him in so many ways, uh, would write him notes about things that he could add or say, but she would use words deliberately knowing that he didn't know them and so that he would have to go and look them up to try and affect or increase his vocabulary. It's just so amazing because she came from a wealthy family. Uh, in fact, her dad said, I don't want you to marry this Billy Sunday um, because he was such a commoner uh, of sorts. And uh, yet she was so smitten by him and God called uh, together. She was, uh, and perhaps there could be even more history done on her. She was the one who who managed the whole thing, uh, right? So she was the one who was his uh, his help me in every single way. Uh, she was the one who helped organize their their staff, which included over twenty individuals. Um, managed all of the organizations, the bookings, the she, the finances, the everything. She she did that all, uh, and, and really helped make the whole enterprise work. Before she was involved in the ministry, uh, he was he was an interesting draw, but he was in rural communities. Uh, only with with smaller gatherings. Once Nell got involved, it exploded in in size and number to where he's speaking to thousands upon thousands at one time. Yeah, she, she was incredibly gifted. Um, as you say, at first, um, sh- she wouldn't travel. Uh, she would be left behind. 
and uh, his sphere of influence was limited until her kind of involvement. She was incredibly good with handling the finances and the books and uh, arranging the places he would travel to and where he would stay and, and really the whole of the logistics behind him. It's, it's just amazing how they came together. Now, one of the things that he's uh, actually quite famous for uh, is, uh, is prohibition and uh, really events leading up to the, the passage of the 19th Amendment and the uh, restriction of alcohol consumption in, in the United States. Uh, what did he find so deplorable about alcohol that uh, he, he pressed so hard on this issue? I, I think he saw the devastation um, in families that it had created. I, I think even from when he was young, uh, he saw the devastating impact of what alcohol had done on those around him and the families around him. And uh, I, I think he uh, committed his life to what he could to try and having you know an effect on that for uh, those who were similarly being affected in his day. I mean, his uh, one of his most famous sermons was called "Booze or Get on the Water Wagon," <laughs> and uh, that sermon it said persuaded many to actually do that to give up drinking. He saw this as yeah. An incredible uh, success at you know God at work in that. Um, I have been and I will go on. He says fighting that damnable, dirty, rotten business with all the power at my command. Yeah, and this was present somewhat even uh, before he came to to Christ. It was his 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 mom's second husband who abandoned uh, the family uh, when he was still young, uh, who who was an alcoholic and. Uh, he he talks about even before Christ that he he had never really um, consumed too much alcohol even before then. But when he came to Christ, th- there was never another drop of alcohol that he consumed ever again after that point. Um, but he saw this as the the breaker of families and the destruction of uh, a civilization. Um, when you when you think back to um, the the era. Uh, of popular culture in the early 20th century as uh, there are more and more, um, especially in some of the larger cities, uh, more and more of a, of a press uh, relating to alcohol, alcohol sales, um, even advertisements. He really thought it was a, a major uh, societal flaw that had to be corrected. Yes, yeah, certainly his preaching um, led to prohibition being passed. Yeah. He, he certainly was involved. Um, to know what the devil will do, he said, find out what the saloon is doing. If ever there was a jubilee in hell, it was when lager beer was invented. So this is uh, part of his legacy. And as evangelicals, uh, even in the 21st century, when we, uh, oftentimes I have students who ask, you know, why, why do we have such a strong uh, take uh, in, in perhaps Southern Baptist life or whatever against uh, the consumption of alcohol? Like, well, part of it is our, our inheritance, our legacy that we have from individuals just like mm-hmm. Billy Sunday, uh, who fought against uh, what in his day was a significant uh, issue uh, that was affecting families and literally destroying so many lives uh, in, in a big way. Now, uh, another criticism that people had uh, of Sunday had everything to do with finances. So uh, he was uh, very, very wealthy for his day. Um, and while he was generous to a fault, uh, he gave away uh, just so much uh, of his resources to organizations and individuals and, and others. Uh, 
what kind of revenue is he turning in the midst of, uh, of a ministry like this? He is described as being very wealthy. Um, he leaves what was called a, a great estate on death to his family, including trusts. Um, certainly a, a lot of money came into the ministry from his preaching events. So many people attended and so many people gave. Um, there, there is criticism at the amount of money involved, but I know of no charges that have ever been made about him mishandling the yeah. finances. Uh, again, which is a, an incredible kind of positive comment on, on somebody in, involved with this kind of financial uh, situation. And so that was his wife and her, her hands on it. It also put him in proximity to people with power well, so he was struck by this and, and was uh, under president and had, had access in a way that, uh, that many other people didn't. And some of that had to do with his financial status. Yeah, and he was also very good at, at raising funding for other things. So one of the things that he raised millions of dollars for uh, was for the First World War. Yeah. And, and he was recognized for that contribution <laughs> as well. Um, and, and, you know, it, he was never without demand for speaking in different places. But, of course, soon people's interest will be distracted by many other things. Uh, radio, movies, mm -hmm. other entertainment start to draw people away. Um, he, his influence will decrease, but not really his popularity. Correct. And, and this is where even towards the end of his life, uh, he's 72. He's still keeping a strong preaching schedule. Uh, his doctors tell him he needs to stop. He says, I won't. And uh, when he dies on November 6th, um, he, he, he dies still serving, still preaching, still going full force. I, he, just, he just never stopped until it, he stopped. I'm against sin, he preached. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I have a tooth. When I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. <laughs> and that may be the best line with which to close. Uh, I do hope, Lister, you've enjoyed a little bit of this discussion about Billy Sunday. He he really was a fascinating person. He has an autobiography uh, that he wrote uh, that you can read. It's readily available for free on Google Books and and, and it's relatively short. It, it is, and you can. It, I would encourage you just to grab it and read it, uh, and then also do exactly what uh, Mike recommended to go and watch. Uh, just Google one of his ser his sermons, and because of the era in which he lived, there are some of these early sermons, or excuse me, later sermons of his life um, that that you could still see and hear, and and somewhat marvel at uh, the the way that he uh, he engaged within his yeah, public. Yeah, to be able to see him um, is an incredible gift, I think. Yeah, and and there are some you know, great biographies too that you can read. Um, Lyle Dorset has one. There have been two 
uh, published recently about him, so there's no end to the books either. Uh, if you have an interest in finding out more. And we would always encourage you to find out more. (laughs) So thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next week on This Week in Church History.